Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. popular science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Eleanor Cummins. And I'm Claire Maldarelli. So on The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story that we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, etc., and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Eleanor, why don't you start with your tease? I would like to talk about quarantine. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Just the concept. It's and some very specific upsetting stories that I found. Oh, fun. Yes. Timely. Yes. Claire? Yes, I would like to talk about why, for some people, cilantro tastes like feet. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I have the weird cilantro gene, but I've never heard the feet comparison. Oh, there's there's a bunch more that I can share with you. Great. Awesome. I'm going to learn more about myself today. (laughs) My fact is about syphilis and all the ways it helped shape fashion. Ooh. Such a hypochondriac episode. (laughs) (laughs) Claire, I would love to hear more about cilantro. Yeah. Okay. It's news I can use. Totally. Okay. So there are three events that compelled me to share this fact with you, and I'm going to share all three events with you before I share the fact. (laughs) So, in college, when I first met my friend Lisa, who's now one of my closest and dearest friends, so hopefully she won't hate me, even though of all the, like, every time I talk about a friend on Weirdest Thing or family member, they like it, so hopefully that continues. Okay, we were having lunch together and decided to split a meal, and when the meal arrived, we took a bite, and she literally, well, we both took bites, 
you know, separately, whatever. Um, <laughs> you get the idea. She spat hers right back out. And I was like, who is this person? <laughs> That's not normal. And she was like, oops, I didn't realize it had cilantro. And I was like, that's also weird response to spitting something out, a weird explanation. Um, I gave her the benefit of the doubt. Clearly, we just had dinner a couple weeks ago. It was fine. <laughs> it went well. I no one projectile. Be, yeah. I would like to be friends with her for the foreseeable forever. So, okay. Then second, according to a 2010 New York Times article, in a television interview in 2002, Julia Child described the foods that she hated, and she said, cilantro and arugula, I don't like at all. They're both green herbs. They have kind of a dead taste to me. Yes. And then she's asked if she would order it, and she said, I would pick it out if I saw it and throw it on the floor. Amazing. <laughs> and third, there used to be a website on the internet called IHateCilantro.com, <laughs> and the site is almost solely devoted to haikus people wrote expressing their ill will towards cilantro. And I wrote down a few of them to share with you. Oh, wonderful. Yes, just to show you their sheer poetic brilliance. Oh, soapy flavor. Why pollutest thou food? Thou make me wretched. <laughs> Soak your dirty feet in lemon water and drink. Tastes like cilantro. <laughs> oh, God. Awful leafy green. I hate your popularity. You smell like cat piss. Wow. So This is my fave. Cilantro, you stink. You taste like a Christmas tree in my burrito. <laughs> okay, so what's the deal? Ever since my friend spat out her meal back onto her plate, I've been extremely curious why is so much percent of the population somehow hates cilantro. To be totally transparent, I do not love or hate cilantro. It's just there to it's me. It's the most neutral thing. It is so neutral. See, I don't. That's, that's what's so crazy is that hearing people describe cilantro as neutral I'm like no it has one of the strongest flavors in the world and so Claire strange. is going to explain why yes I, yeah but I, yeah I've never I'm with Eleanor I don't like I would love to know what cilantro tastes I like I could tell just you couldn't, I couldn't pick it out thinking about it now I'm like I have no descriptors nothing right yeah exactly same so Rachel and some other folks think differently they say it tastes like soap dirty feet Christmas trees cat urine. All bad <laughs> things to say about food. And surprisingly, scientists have not yet pinned down what actually causes this dirty feet taste, but there's a lot of interesting tidbits to share with you. So for a long time, they thought it was solely genetic, and there were all these really good studies and anecdotal evidence to back that up. My own personal anecdote, anecdotal evidence, Lisa's entire family hates cilantro, mm. except for her dad and her brother. So it's just her mom and her two and her sister. So it's like them three. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's some interesting genetics there. And then a 2012 study published in the journal Flavor, great title, Love, yeah, amazing, mm -hmm. found that of the 1,639 people they surveyed, 21% of those who identified as East Asian said it tasted like soap, 17% of Caucasians, 14% of those of African descent, 7% of South Asians, 4% of Hispanics, and 3% of Middle Eastern subjects all said soap. So it's like a huge—now it ranges, obviously, in ethnic groups, but it's definitely like even 3% is a significant part of the population. Mm -hmm. So it's like, what's, what's the deal? And so 
subsequently, there's been many genetic studies, including like 23andMe asking if you hate cilantro. I love those questions on 23andMe. I'm like, <laughs> I'm learning so much about myself. Beets <laughs> and asparagus. Yeah. So even then, none of those could actually account for everybody. So some people who had the variants loved cilantro. Some people who had the variants hated the cilantro. So confusing all around. So when I was doing research on the internet, the best thing I found was this really, really good New York Times article written by Harold McGee, who's a food science author. He said it's sort of, he's found through his research that it's sort of a combination of neuroscience and food chemistry. Mm. So according to the article, flavored chemists have found that the cilantro aroma is created by a half dozen dozen or so substances, and most of them are modified fragments of fat molecules called aldehydes. And the same or similar aldehydes are also found in soaps and lotions Mm. and also in the bug family of insects. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. So soaps are made by fragmenting fat molecules while with strongly alkaline lye or its equivalent, and aldehydes are a byproduct of this process. But why some people tend more towards soap and others don't is is still interesting. So it's like you're always getting this like byproduct that tastes like mm. soap, but why are some people like Rachel and my friend Lisa spitting it out and why are some people like us yeah. not hating it and others are just like I love cilantro, put it in everything. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if those people exist. I don't Do think they? it's like call us. Sriracha. <laughs> Yeah, so why some people tend towards this and others, it makes no sense. And he posed this to a bunch of neuroscientists. And one of them, who is actually used to be a cilantro hater and has willed himself to like cilantro, (laughs) said that essentially, like, your senses of taste and smell are primal. So if you taste something that you think tastes soapy or tastes like poison, you're going to say, oh, no, this is is gross, this is disgusting, Mm. and remember it for next time. And so people who instantly taste this soap-like flavor are like, avoid cilantro. And so when they taste it again, it's sort of just like an enhanced sort of mechanism or a feedback pathway. Whereas others who don't have that initial reaction are just like, oh, cilantro, whatever. And so that's why he thinks that maybe... So it's like magnified over time. Like you, the next time you do it, you will have remembered your aversion and it will be kind of reinforced. Yeah, exactly. Which kind of like makes sense from a survival mechanism that like we should remember things that are poisonous to us. And so this guy tried it out himself and he was like, I love food. I'm a food, like a foodie, a neuroscientist. I know better. So I'm going to force myself essentially to eat cilantro every single day. And he did. And now he actually doesn't mind it. Okay. (laughs) I Well, I think it's pretty common for people who like have a really strong aversion to it because of like a genetic reason to like try to adapt. Mm -hmm. I mean, I certainly, I remember a time in my life where if there was any cilantro in anything, I like could not enjoy it. Yeah. And now in certain foods, it can be like easy for me to ignore or I'm like willing to ignore it. So, like, an interesting, like, genetics versus subjective taste thing is in my family, I've always known that I hate cilantro. And it's, like, a really strong taste to me. I don't know how I would describe it. I probably wouldn't say soap, but it's just, like... Would you say dirty feet or cat urine? I wouldn't. (laughs) Or a Christmas tree? (laughs) So, I do taste... I think that a lot of beers that are hoppy taste like tree. So, Mm. I know what people mean when they say it tastes like Christmas tree. Mm. It's not quite that... For me, it's kind of like there's no taste like cilantro to me, but it is so intense and so overpowering and unpleasant. 
But so I found out just a couple years ago that actually my dad was like, well, yeah, like cilantro tastes kind of bad to me. But like I just learned to ignore it because like, yeah, exactly. And then my sister realized that like she loves cilantro and she's like, it tastes so fresh, so springy. And she realized that that taste isn't something that most people get. She's tasting what people who, quote, can eat cilantro taste, but she just likes it. She likes it. it. So wow. she just likes soap. It's like those people that like the smell of, <laughs> well, she like, doesn't, gasoline. She doesn't think it tastes like soap. She's, she's like, it's just such a, like, indescribable, fresh flavor. And it's, like, the same way to me. I'm like, I can't describe what it tastes like. It's just so strong. Mm-hmm. To her, mm-hmm. that's, like, a positive thing. That wow. It's, like, this really bright note in a dish. I see. Um, but for me, it's just bad. And my uh, fiancé, Oliver, also hates cilantro, so it makes it way easier for us to get food together because we're just like <laughs> no. no cilantro on any of it no Por favor. no cats peeing in our food <laughs> i think he he hates it even more than i do i'm like if if there's some in something i will probably be okay but if it's the like predominant herb in a dish it just really ruins it for me that's so interesting see then i feel like there's no faith there's no like good things that will come for you not just for cilantro, not life. Um, <laughs> no good thing. <laughs> on both just, your houses. Just cilantro. Because you have no, like, reason to force yourself to eat cilantro because your fiancé hates it just as much. It's true. It's true. And I think I've, I've like, achieved as much as I need to in terms of, like, being able to ignore it so that I can be, like, an adult accepting food that's given to me and not being, like, oh, I got to pick out every little yeah. piece of cilantro. That's exactly what my my friend, yeah. she's like, I just want to be at a restaurant with, like, fancy people and be able to eat cilantro if it's like happens to be in a dish yeah i think we should get rid of it <laughs> like <laughs> the devil's parsley m- most of us don't care so why right, are we exactly. torturing those who do yeah like <laughs> she always when she knows i'm it's running gonna have, <laughs> if we're out together and she knows it's gonna have cilantro like she's just like can we ask for it not to be on it? i'm like yeah i don't taste it to begin with yeah. why would why would i care yeah yeah so maybe we I should think we're just... the bad guys <laughs> <laughs> Wow, this is taking a turn for the worse for me. Okay, so then, well, I was going to share this little, like, service journalism piece for Rachel and other folks, but maybe we're the problem, so I shouldn't do it. please. Please give me your advice. Okay, so cilantro pesto. Mm. If you, like, crush it up, not blender, you have Mm. to do it, like, mortar and pestle style, and that, apparently, it changes, like, the leaf enzymes break down gradually, and it converts the aldehyde into other substances with no aroma. Whoa. That totally makes sense, because I've definitely had, like, things that clearly have cilantro in it, and I, like, it doesn't, it's not just that it's not overpowering. Like, I don't really taste it. Mm. So it make, those were probably things where it was massaged, like kale. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So now all you have to do is carry around a mortar. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let me just crush up our food. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's my fact. And I, I found out that poetry. I'm just basically a terrible person, and so is Eleanor. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more facts. Okay, we're back. And Eleanor. Yes. Why don't you tell us about disease? Oh, I would love to. So right now, quarantine is in the news. Sure. Because of the coronavirus, which is a novel 
virus that is spreading around the world. And so people are using this method of containing anybody who shows symptoms or has been around people who Mm -hmm. show symptoms. And so this idea of isolation as a way of stopping the spread of disease goes back millennia. In Leviticus, that's the Bible, um, (laughs) they describe a mosaic law of isolation. So if you're showing signs of this like white spotted disease, I'm actually not sure what they were referring to. But if you show signs of this, the Bible says you have to spend seven days in isolation and then the rabbi will come and he will check on you. And if you are still showing signs, you have seven more days in isolation. And I guess theoretically this repeats until you either get better or die. But the modern idea of quarantine has its own really fun story. It comes from the Venetians. And in 1377, they had a city-state in Croatia that decided to isolate ships and their crews for 30 days on islands offshore before letting them into Croatia because they were sick of the Black Death. They were over it. (laughs) It killed, like, one in four or, like, one in three people. It was bad. And so they were like, you know what, we're just, like, not going to let these people who keep bringing the Black Death in. So they just have to hang out. (laughs) And literally the idea was, like, if if they live, then they're not sick. (laughs) And if they don't Mm. live... Then they were sick, and so we're fine, and that's okay. And eventually, the Venetians expanded this to 40 days, which is where you get quaranta giorni, or quarantine. Oh, Oh my goodness. Yes. I love that. And what's amazing is that modern analyses have suggested that the plague, the Black Death, really takes 37 days to go from sort of silent incubation to death. Mm. And so it was the proper amount of time. Like, they they finally figured it out. And wow. so it was fairly successful. 30 days was not enough time. No, <laughs> no. People were wandering in and then starting to show signs. But yeah, so the, the Quaranta Giorni, like, really worked for them. And the Venetians were also big in the development of other methods of isolation. So this is where you get leper colonies Mm. um, in the Middle Ages. And the idea was that if you isolated people with leprosy, ideally on their own island, then they wouldn't be able to, like, spread their disease, which, by the way, isn't actually really how leprosy works. We now know you have to be – you have to have a certain set – of genes to be susceptible in the first place. It is not at all like the Black Death. And they called these, um, I just thought this was interesting to go back to like how much of this is kind of religious. They called them lazarettos or like lazar houses oh. because of the beggar Lazarus. Oh. <laughs> and so they were operated by the Catholic Church as kind of like charity, except they were terrible and they just sent you away to an island. And that continued, you know, well into the modern era. Like, in the 19th century, Hawaii had lazarettos on the island of Molokai, which you can, like, go visit. It's a national park now. But this whole idea was operating in parallel of a more recent phenomenon in French, which is called cordon sanitaire. And that was the idea of instead of keeping people sort of, like, offshore or, like, in this, like, 40-day kind of quarantine, what you would do is you would create geographic boundaries around communities Mm -hmm. and sort of say, you know, healthy people should not come here or like the sick people inside cannot leave. Mm. And this is like sort of a modern like development on this idea of the 40 day quarantine. And so one example I was reading about was in Gunnison, Colorado. They imposed a quarantine on themselves during the Spanish influenza. And so that was like in 
from October 1918 to February 1919, they were like, if you come in here, you will be arrested. Like, you have to spend time in quarantine. And they were like a mining town, and they had the railroad running through. And so they had signs all over the place that were like, if you get off the train here, like, you are going to be forced into quarantine. And if you don't, like, agree to this, you will be jailed. And, you know, it was one of those things where to some degree, you could maybe say it was successful. Like, they appear to maybe have had fewer deaths than neighboring communities who did receive the Spanish influenza from these people on the trains. But people still did die. And that's where, like, quarantine brings up these serious concerns about human rights, right? Mm -hmm. Because, like, what does it mean for, like, a government or a public health official or whoever to say, like, you cannot move, right? And you cannot do things anymore until we're, like, certain that the disease has left you. So there's actually a UN Council resolution that was adopted in 1984 called the Syracuse Principles, which was supposed to sort of control this to some degree. And the idea was that this could easily be, like, an authoritarian sort of strategy for, like, controlling the movement of people. Like, we have to kind of specify when a quarantine is appropriate. But I was reading through it, and as with so many UN things, it is very vague. (laughs) I feel like it is extremely open to interpretation. It says that a quarantine needs to be based on laws. Mm. What laws? (laughs) The laws. Any laws. (laughs) The laws of the land. It should be legal. It should be evidence-based. It should be necessary, proportional, (laughs) and gradual. So... I feel like (laughs) do they have any like links you know is it like interactive (laughs) for more insight no that's it and so yeah like okay I feel like given that we're talking about like epidemic diseases right like that are ravaging communities you could say a lot of things are proportional under those circumstances so we're kind of we're we don't really have a great control over this and this is like typhoid mary is the classic example of this have we mm. talked about her on the podcast before i don't believe so yeah, well, I, don't oh, mm, I, I, like... I don't know her <laughs> i i'm not sure if she's ever actually come up okay so i mean like typhoid mary is basically an american like myth Icon. at this point, right? Yeah, like she Wait, can is. You catch me up. Yeah, I don't yeah. know Mary. <laughs> yeah, so Typhoid Mary was living in New York, and she was discovered to be an asymptomatic carrier of typhoid. Oh, that's scary. And so, and typhoid is spread by like fecal matter. Okay. Yes. So okay. like shared bathroom facilities. It was like especially uh, a problem in like if you lived in housing where like multiple families shared gotcha. uh, bathroom. Like tenement style. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say tenement. Which is like where she was living. And she was also specifically like a housekeeper. Mm-hmm. So she would move into people's houses. She would be responsible as well, right? Like because it's a fecal born illness. Like, okay, let's be honest. We're all walking around with like a little bit of shit for everything. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Like poop, poop particles everywhere. Everywhere. And so she would live in the house. She'd use the facilities, but then she'd also go and make your food, right? Right. So she's like fully integrated into your life. And she never shows any symptoms. So people like don't know like, oh, this woman has this disease. So they they hire her. And then it turns out like all of these people keep falling ill and the public health officials, you know, do their investigative work. And they're like, yeah, this asymptomatic carrier has infected over the course of her life 51 people. Oh, my gosh. And so she 
is forced into state-ordered isolation, and she spends 30 years of her life. Much Wait, of it, they couldn't, she couldn't get rid of it? Like, yeah, they had no cure. This is, like, she was born in the 1860s, and she ends up dying in the 1930s. And so, like, in that time, we have nothing to offer, like, her or the people who are being infected by her. And so they're just—they literally sent her to North Brother Island in the East River, like, by Rikers Island, which was, like, this— like hospital sanitarium kind of place and they were like you can never leave well and in the defense of the public health officials i'm pretty sure they had like repeatedly asked her to like stop stop working being like a cook <laughs> yeah uh, stop interacting with and people in her defense how else was she going to like yes have a livelihood so she, and also i think uh, maybe this is contested now but they there was often the narrative that she like didn't really believe that she had typhoid and was right. giving it to people because she had no symptoms. Well, she symptoms. had no symptoms, so how are you supposed to believe? Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. I don't believe half the things my doctor <laughs> tells me. So, like, I think there was – there was there seemed to be no way to contain her other yeah. than literally containing her. Yeah. Then, like, and basically. also, like, giving her room and board since she wasn't allowed to cook for people anymore. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. No, I feel for both parties. Like, yeah. what are you supposed to do when this person, like, literally... I mean, it's, like, a classic, like, utilitarian philosophical problem, except it's, like, real. Like, mm-hmm. what does it mean when one person can infect this many people? Right. But, yeah, also, like, of course she continued to work. Yeah. <laughs> like, she was like, I feel fine. Yeah, and <laughs> she was like, I also need to make money, and they didn't offer her any other solutions right, until exactly. they basically made her a public health prisoner. So... Typhoid Mary dies in 1938, and, you know, she she is this kind of, like, legendary figure. There's a lot of myths and stuff surrounding her, and she has, a, I think, you know, a demonstrable impact on public health in the United States. In 1944, the federal government passed the Public Health Service Act, which is to the first time that they gave themselves formally the right to, quote, apprehend, detain, and examine certain infected persons who are peculiarly likely to cause the interstate spread of disease. And so that is sort of where our first official quarantine authority comes from. Today, the quarantine operation is managed by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, so the CDC, and they operate at least 19 international airport quarantine facilities, as well as a land border crossing in El Paso, Texas, and then they're responsible for the whole region. So the thinking is like, similarly to the Venetians, like disease will be coming from outside, and so we will <laughs> right. stop the people, and we will put them in these cells, but, but also like if cases show up, you know, like in Chicago, like the airport quarantine facilities, like they're the ones that are responsible for sort of helping the whole region um, with this work. But, you know, similarly to, I think like Typhoid Mary shows like a really interesting example of like the intersections of like class and disease, Right. right? And like her need to keep providing for herself. Quarantine is also like extremely racialized. So historically, we have not only like leper colonies, but also the idea of like, Ethnic enclaves are are ghettos, and specifically Chinatowns in the United States, Mm -hmm. like, are also operating in that model. I think we we don't think about how, like, historically they were ways of segregating people literally on the belief that they were dirty and, Mm. like, carrying disease, right? And that was the idea there. So in the U.S., Chinese people were made when they started immigrating in the 19th century to live in these sort of communities that were apart from white Americans who thought that they were dirty and carrying the plague. And San Francisco had the plague from 1900 to 1904, and this is, like, a super famous case in the history of public health because they placed all of these really aggressive quarantines on Chinatown and then eventually on all Asians in the state. And the thing was that the governor denied that there was even any cases of plague (laughs) 
<laughs> in the state and said that public health officials who had been sent in by the federal government to try to con- like control the situation were injecting the plague into Chinese corpses to scare people. So there was all of this like crazy fear-mongering that was going on back and forth at the time. And eventually he's the governor and, and these sort of conspiracy theorists like succeeded in kicking the public health officials out of San Francisco. Wow. And the plague then continued. And it's not <laughs> Wow, go figure. Yeah. Interesting. And it's not as though these quarantines, these like racialized quarantines were like a smart strategy in any sense, right? They're like very non-specific and extremely prejudicial. But the like counterattack on them also meant that the public health officials couldn't do their work. And so, you know, it's just like this ongoing thing that we're seeing with the coronavirus today where there is a genuine need, right, to stop diseases from spreading. Mm -hmm. We know that scientifically backed quarantine is one strategy to do that. But there are just so many other things that like intersect with the practice of quarantine that make it really difficult to get right and I think can often end up sort of hurting people as much as it ends up containing disease and and helping people. So, you know, the United States has obviously imposed quarantines related to the coronavirus. I was just listening this morning to people on a cruise ship off of Japan on NPR who were, like, talking about how they've just learned how to tweet while, like, (laughs) in imposed isolation on this cruise ship because they have nothing else to do. But, you know, the the situation in Wuhan in particular, where the coronavirus is thought to have originated, is particularly upsetting. And people are calling it a human rights violation because it's the city of 11 million people on yeah. lockdown. Mm. And it's they're, they're going around, they're checking everyone's temperatures. Like, they're, oh. it's very, very controlled. And, you know, this strategy is now opening up concerns. Like, how will they get more medical supplies? How will they get more food? Like, when you blockade yourself, you have only the resources, you know, behind the blockade. So this is, like, an ongoing situation Mm -hmm. that, like, you know, I think is just interesting to look back as the coronavirus situation continues to develop. But also just, like, all future diseases, right? Like, this is one of the things that we consistently do. And it's interesting to understand. And that we've not completely figured it out. Like, what are the best practices yet? Yeah. Yeah, well, even the, um, you know, the U.S. has imposed a travel ban. So foreign nationals who have been to China in the last 14 days and who aren't immediate family members of citizens or uh, legal permanent residents of the U.S. uh, are just not allowed in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Uh, And people who are exempt from that, whether they're citizens, immediate family members of citizens or permanent residents, have the 14-day quarantine imposed uh, when they come having been in China in the previous 14 days. And the World Health Organization has repeatedly advised against any travel bans because the World Health Organization says there isn't evidence that this helps significantly. It increases fear. It disrupts economies and that like it's best to, you know, advise people not to take unnecessary travel to the center of the epidemic, obviously, but that it doesn't make any sense for any country to bar people who have been to another country entirely. But from the U.S. perspective, you know, the CDC has said on numerous occasions, like, we are taking drastic action because of a drastic situation. So, yeah, it really is like you can say that measures have to be evidence-based, but, like, people just pick the evidence they want to base it on. Totally. Um, So, yeah, we really don't know enough about how epidemics turn into pandemics, which is a problem. Yes. So that was my fact. <laughs> Cheery. It Great. didn't have as much like hypochondria moments that I was expecting. <laughs> yeah. So I'm coming away slightly 
Okay. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, well, let's end it now before <laughs> before things take a turn. We'll be back after a quick break with one more fact. Okay, we're back. And I'm here to talk about syphilis, mm. which I know I've talked about before on Weirdest Thing because we talked about the guy who won the Nobel Prize for treating syphilis by giving people malaria to, like, cook it out of them with a fever, which is um, not a great idea, Mm-mm. but was was the best we had, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Prize winning. <laughs> yeah. But just a little, a, a brief primer on, on syphilis, since it is one of those diseases that I think a lot of people think of as being like old timey. They don't know a lot about it. So it's caused by this spiral shaped bacteria. It's really, it's really spunky. It's very sassy looking called uh, Treponema pallidum. And its origin is disputed. For a long time, people maintained that it was in the Americas and was brought over by colonizers as they, you know, went back and forth. But it's also possible that it was actually already endemic in Europe and just like it reaching like epidemic levels in Europe just like happened to kind of come somewhat after expeditions to the New World. That's interesting. So like it may have just been lurking and, like, people had it, and then all of a sudden it kind of, like, flared up, potentially? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. At a societal level. Right. Not, not a flare-up in an individual. Right. And it really was something that, like, just went from being not a big deal to being a really big deal. Basically, outbreaks in Europe became noteworthy around the late 1400s. It showed up in Naples during a French invasion, mm. which is why the Italians called it the French pox. But actually, like, if you look back at the names that have been given to syphilis, like, people blamed it on other countries. Of course. They were like, it's the British plague. It's the French pox. <laughs> you know, everybody, because it would kind of, like, travel with armies, everybody would just blame it on, like, the army that had just passed through. But, yeah, around the 15th century, it, like, became an epidemic, and then it became endemic, meaning, like, so many people had it that it was just a fact of life. Okay. You didn't have mm-hmm. outbreaks of syphilis. All of Europe was in an outbreak of syphilis <laughs> for like hundreds of years. So the symptoms these days, uh, penicillin tends to treat syphilis pretty handily. So while it still exists and is actually in some demographics becoming more common, generally penicillin, you're done, you're good. You know, shot to the butt cheek, great. But before antibiotics... The way it would tend to play out is that you would have what was called a shanker, a I firm, don't like this. <laughs> painless, <laughs> non-itchy ulceration. So really just upsetting visually. That's primary syphilis. And then secondary syphilis is a more systemic rash, often affecting the hands and soles of feet and more of those ulcer-like sores. Uh, and then you have latent syphilis, which can last for years and has no symptoms. And actually, throughout the history of syphilis, you'll see people mistaking it for multiple diseases because of how it will, like, calm down for a while and then come back. Interesting. So a lot of the supposed cures of syphilis were probably just, like, people getting over their secondary syphilis stage and going into latent. And they'd be like, great, all of the hot pokers we put on your (laughs) sores, that was literally one of the cures. It worked. My God. And then later they'd be like, you idiot, you got yourself syphilis again. 
That is not how I it works. Medicine. It was just one, <laughs> one <laughs> syphilis. Um, <laughs> and then tertiary syphilis is later, you know, it can be decades after you become infected and you can have neurological degeneration where syphilis is attacking the brain. You can have heart problems. Vision problems are quite common. And these sores called gumas, which can have a necrotic center, so it can be, oh. uh, yeah, or it can just be these big non-cancerous growths. So oh. basically, a lot of bad stuff. Not good, not recommended. I like how they just went for it in naming all of the things. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, mm-hmm. they're, it's terrible. Shankers? And what was the other G- one? Gumas? Yeah, those are for foreboding. <laughs> they sound like enemies in a Mario game. Uh, yes. <laughs> Guma and his troopers. <laughs> also, Shanker is spelled like like Chaucer. Mm. I always want to say it like like Chaucer, but it's not. It's Shanker. My favorite writer. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about how tertiary syphilis like melts your brain. We're here to talk about how syphilis influenced a little thing called fashion. Oh, whoa. Did you heard see that it? coming? Have you heard of it? Well, I know fashion. <laughs> Just so, recently got bangs. <laughs> it's true. All right. So we're going to talk about three major fashion moments that may have been fueled by syphilitic frenzy, if you will. Mm. So big powdered wigs, a classic sign of wealth and excess in in many Mm. European Mm -hmm. cultures. And they existed for a long time in different forms, but a lot of people think that they were really popularized by the wealthy, by Louis XIV of France. Um, He reigned from 1643 to 1715, and he started losing his hair at age 17. Now, of course, it's possible he was losing his hair for any number of reasons, but it is quite widely believed that he had syphilis. Because he was kind of a coming. bit of a tart. With syphilis, you know, when you get those rashes and, and sores, it can cause hair loss and also just kind of like a scabby scalp in general. Okay. It's not a pleasant situation mm-hmm. for you or for people looking upon your royal head. So it's believed by some historians that powdered wigs had become popular for these ever-growing populations of people who had syphilis as a way to cover up their hair loss and their skin sores, and that Louis XIV had such profound hair loss from his syphilis that he was like, yeah, that sounds great, get me one of those. Mm -hmm. And that once he was doing it, other fashionable wealthy people were like, all right, all right. Gotta get one. I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. His cousin, Charles II of England, who started going gray quite young and some people think also had syphilis, Mm. also jumped on the Or maybe he was stressed. Yeah, right. Maybe he was just stressed because of his syphilis. (laughs) So he also started wearing wigs, and he in particular really solidified the powdered wigs place as a symbol of, like, you being a member of polite society. Mm. And, in fact, he is why judges and lawyers started to wear them around 1680. Until then, lawyers were expected to have just, like, short, clean hair and beards. (laughs) Um, But Charles II had made a powdered wig so ubiquitous with being, like, a nobleman, wow. that it started to become a thing that they all did. Also, powdered wigs were great for lice, which everybody had, oh. because while getting rid of lice in your own hair was, like, an arduous process, Yeah, if you shaved your head to wear a wig, then the lice would just infest the wig, and you could send those to a wig maker, and they'd just boil the wig. 
and that would kill the lice. Why don't you just shave your head for a bit, get rid of the lice? (laughs) Yeah, but then you'd be bald and people would think you had syphilis. It's temporary. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. And also, just fun fact, not related to syphilis, powdered wigs were already kind of on their way out in a fashion sense by 1795. But in an attempt to fund the Napoleonic Wars, British politicians put a tax on hair powder they put a tax on a bunch of like luxury goods to try to come up with the money they needed Always to fight Napoleon. taxing things, those Europeans. <laughs> <laughs> and anyone wishing to use hair powder had to get an annual certificate from their local justice of the peace. And it cost a guinea a year, which is something like $150 to $200 today. Oh, my God. And what? so powdered wigs were already like not super popular anymore, but this kind of like killed them. Yeah. People were not willing to pay. They should have stormed a ship in the harbor. (laughs) Just thrown out all the powder in protest. (laughs) I totally buy that argument about him, like, like syphilis, but make it fashion. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Well, we've talked about, like, consumptive chic before, where because so many rich, beautiful people had tuberculosis, it just kind of created this feedback loop where then Mm -hmm. the symptoms of tuberculosis were, like, that was the height of beauty. Just like skinny and sweating. Yeah. And like flushed. Yeah. So with syphilis, you just did a lot of covering up um, <laughs> as your body rotted off of you. Oh, God. So that became popular. But yeah, the, another possible fashion influence was the cod piece. So this is a little bit contested, but in 2004, Dr. Con Scott Reed of Australia speculated in a study that the proportions of the cod piece were at times so extreme and even like grotesque that he suspected there was some functional mechanism there that okay. it wasn't just about like highlighting your imaginary yeah. penis. Right. And what is that? Oh, oh, a cod piece. Okay. From our producer oh. Jess says, I need, "What I is what is the cod piece?" <clears throat> so it's just like the the like fake bulge. Like oh, a that metal like in tights. Mm-hmm. Oh. Totally. Like, yeah. Yeah. Or like on your armor. I remember the first time I ever saw a cod piece. My parents took me to England when I was 10. And we were, <laughs> mm, we were, I think, in the Tower of London or something. And, you know, they have like all those little museums. And I rounded a corner and I was at the height <laughs> of a cod piece <laughs> that belonged to King Henry VIII, the one who killed all his wives. And he loved a cod piece. He loved a cod piece. Enormous. It was like metal and like, you know, he's, like, uh, theoretically lumbering around in this, like, chain mail, and then he has this enormous cod piece, and I was just so shocked. <laughs> <laughs> so, this, so that's from syphilis. <laughs> right. So this paper argued that because of the time during which they were popular, it was probably a time when people were dealing with syphilis extensively and that it may have been used to like because people had bundles of bandages on their genitals that this was like used to disguise that bulge by making it fashion. Mm. I did find one article where a scholar disputes this by saying that first of all their penises weren't weren't put into cod pieces based on what we know. So it's not like they were containing your bandages. But the the argument being made in the 2004 paper wasn't that. It was that you created a bulge with your bandages. So you might as well make a bigger bulge yeah. with a cod piece so that people thought it was deliberate. Or if everyone has a bulge, no one has a bulge, you know. 
So this is also addressed yeah. on the you can't just you can't just <laughs> walk into your room and be like Henry VIII got a lot of syphilis. <laughs> and the this person also argued that no prince would take on a fashion trend associated with syphilis or disease. To which I say, hard disagree. Yeah, <laughs> because uh, literally everyone had syphilis, so there wasn't much choice. And also, you know, kind of the whole point was that a king or prince might have to adopt one of these fashion workarounds. Because they, like so many people, had a disease that was affecting, you know, their face right. or body. And people would just, like, buy it. They'd be like, yeah, great. He's doing it. We're all going to do it. Um, yeah, it sounds like penicillin really ruined things. <laughs> yeah. for, we for haven't had a, a fashion development since. <laughs> yeah, but apparently, you know, cod pieces were popular for less than a century. And we actually just don't know a ton about them. Like, there aren't so enough weird. of them preserved and they weren't popular for long enough of a period that we can like really discern. I know where you can find a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And so the last fashion movement possibly propelled by syphilis. So this is from a racked article, RIP, Mm. by Jennifer Wright in 2015 about the history of sunglasses. And sunglasses were not invented because of syphilis. They have existed in various forms for centuries. Apparently in the 12th century in Asia, they were worn by judges. You couldn't discern their expression. I love that. Yeah, I love that. But apparently in the 19th and 20th century, they became quite popular among people who had syphilis because their eyes were often quite sensitive. And so tinted glasses could make going about the world more bearable for them. And they also provided a helpful home for your fake nose. Um, oh, what? no. Yes. A disfigured nose is one of the hallmarks of tertiary syphilis. Oh, my gosh. And so people would have these little nose covers. They um, were literally wearing those nose glasses. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. No. Yeah. Yeah, this is real. People, I will put a picture of this on popside.com. But um, and you then would, you put your wig on top of it. <laughs> I think at that point you could you could wear like hats and okay. things. It was powdered wigs were not the fashion anymore. Maybe unpowdered wigs, I guess. But yeah, it was like it's not like it fooled anybody. Like, no, but it was it it allowed people to not. It meant so, that you didn't have to deal with people like focusing on. Yeah, if they were focusing on it, they were focusing on your big metal fake nose and yeah. not your like oozing syphilitic sore of a nose which is you know it's sad that people had to hide Mm -hmm. it's sad that there wasn't a treatment for this like very systemic disease today like i said syphilis is pretty easily treated but it is like on the rise in certain demographics and in fact the latest report on sexually transmitted infections from the cdc noted that there's a really troubling rise in congenital syphilis which is when Mm. a newborn contracts syphilis during delivery right and that can cause all sorts of problems, blindness, horrible skin disfigurement, tons of developmental problems. And so, yeah, if you you know, get tested early and often, including if you're pregnant and there's any chance, literally any chance, you may have syphilis. Yeah. And it's a king's disease, you know? So, like, don't feel bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. You're in great company. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, any disease that is as prolific as syphilis was is bound to influence the culture. And it did. I loved that. That's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. I'm going out and buying a wig. I don't know. Yeah, it really is wild how much the prosthetic noses are just those costume 
giant glasses and noses. Yeah. yeah. Like, yes. <laughs> Just like a really earnest version of that. <laughs> wow. What was the weirdest thing we learned this week? Wow, I feel like all the things yeah, that can be wrong with syphilis. Yeah. yeah. Or that have come from syphilis. Definitely. Yeah. Wow. We owe syphilis a great debt. <laughs> <laughs> that we do. Thank you. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other weirdos find the show. For more information on the stories you heard in this episode, come find us at popsi.com slash weird. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popsi.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, with editing and audio engineering by Jess Bodie. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, questions or weird stories to share tweet us at weirdest underscore thing thanks for listening weirdos angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well i absolutely love this because you know if you own a home it can be really hard to maintain it's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small well whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.